We have over a year now been studying the various tenets of our statement of faith, and we come to the very final tenet tonight, the 20th of those statements that we hold dear and that define the things that we believe. And although this is the last of them, it is multi-parted. That's not even a word, is it? It has several portions. And, of course, the theme is, is uh, a huge one, the judgment, the day of judgment. Our statement of faith says God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world by Jesus Christ. When everyone shall receive according to his deeds, the wicked shall go away into everlasting punishment, the righteous unto everlasting life. We have read for you a portion of scripture found in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 25, beginning there in verse 31, and we'll come back to this in just a moment. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. And as we go to the Lord in prayer, please pray for one of our dear members, Kathy Davis. Her mother went home to be with the Lord this afternoon. She's been very sick and near going home, and she is rejoicing. And as we believe to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So let's pray for those who grieve at this point. Our Lord, we do bring our dear sister before the throne of grace. And at the same time, we rejoice in your bringing your saints home. Your word tells us that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And Lord, but we know that our human heart ties and relationships are, are very dear. And we pray for this one, our fellow member, that you bless and sustain her and give her all that she needs during these days. Lord, as we approach this important subject tonight and as we prepare our hearts to Remember, as you have taught us, your death until you come. We pray that the Holy Spirit of God would be our teacher and guide and lead us in righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The text here in Matthew chapter 25 is set within the context of the Olivet Discourse, of that portion of Scripture referring to the Olivet Discourse, our Lord's sermon there. Three of the parables in this sermon, in the message that Christ is giving here, speak of coming judgment. Jesus Christ will come suddenly, the Bible teaches, unannounced, and he will judge the world. Acts chapter 17, verse 31 says, He has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. Our Lord often spoke of judgment in his preaching. And it is said that he spoke of hell more than he spoke of heaven. From him, primarily, we learn what hell is like. As we looked at last Lord's Day evening, as we studied that death is the separation of the soul from the body and the everlasting states of the, the saved and the lost. And primarily, the, the tortures of hell, the horrors of that place, are told to us in the Lord's own words. All the while, he pleads earnestly and tenderly to sinners to repent and to turn from their sins and to come to him for salvation. For he says of himself, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Throughout this Olivet Discourse, and we, of course, did not read the entire message, he urges his followers to remain faithful in light of the coming trials that will come and tribulations that will befall God's people. He warns the lost at the same time of their eternal doom. This part of his message is some of the most heart-rending and soul-chilling verses in all the Bible. 
Christ is returning as the great shepherd, as he often refers to himself as the shepherd of his sheep. And now he's coming not as the shepherd, but as the judge, separating the sheep from the goats. Matthew's gospel's primary aim is to present the Messiah, to present Jesus Christ as the king on his throne. And we see this here in his great kingly act of judging the lost. Some say this portion of Scripture describes his first work after his glorious return to earth as ruler. And I believe if we interpret the Scriptures, and as we see tonight, and as we examine the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment, that this judgment takes place after our Lord has taken his church to heaven when he comes back to earth, the very first kingly work that he does is judging the lost. He says, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion in in the Psalms. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces as a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings." Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. I believe this judgment comes at the beginning of the thousand-year reign of Christ, and it is separate from what John refers to in the great revelation, in Revelation 20, as the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment takes place when the thousand-year reign of Christ is brought to an end. And all the lost, from, from the very beginning of time into the last soul, will be brought in the final judgment, will be pronounced upon all them in front of the angelic hosts and the saved, and they will be cast at last into the, the lake of fire. In our text, these are they who have or alive at his coming, and he clearly separates the saved from the unsaved. In the Olivet Discourse, the unsaved are referred to in various ways. They're given various names. They're called goats. They're called unfaithful stewards. And foolish or unwise virgins in the parables illustrated in this message. We see here Christ as the judge, and he must be because John chapter 5 tells us in verse 21, As the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, so even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which has sent him. The dear loving Lamb of God who willingly lay down his life for the sheep, will one day judge the goats. We see that he comes with a great host of angels. Look there again in our text in Matthew 25 and verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come, how? This clearly defines when this will be. In his glory, in his great unveiling, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Second Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and 8 
tells us that the Savior will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe. When you compare Scripture with Scripture, in Matthew 24, verse 31, he shall send his angels with a, a great sound, Matthew 24, and verse 31, with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. It is also noteworthy that in this text, in Matthew 25, verse 34, that he for the first time refers to himself as king. He is acting very kingly here. He has absolute power over sin, hell, death, and the grave. He alone has the authority to pronounce who will go into his kingdom and into heaven and who will be separated into eternal hell. We see in verse 31, again I emphasize that here is the the son coming as the king in his glory. Now, at the snatching away of the church, which we refer to as the rapture, this will be a partial viewing of our Lord. Not every eye will see him in that point. Only the saved will see him and hear his trumpet and be caught up uh, to meet him in the clouds. And that seeing of the Lord, that viewing of the Lord will be by the saved alone. But here we see him coming with great company of angels, the angelic host, the king sitting on his throne. We see in verse 31 that he he comes, the son of man, in all of his glory. This could not refer to the rapture because only the saved will will see him then. The the unsaved will will not notice him. They will go on eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and going about their business, looking at the stock market, watching their watches, waiting for the the, their holiday for their vacation, going on their mundane lives here on earth, not even knowing that one of the greatest events on earth has taken place, that the church has been removed. I believe the scripture we read in Matthew chapter, uh, excuse me, in Revelation chapter 19, if you'll turn there, we need to mark these verses so we'll have an understanding of this event. I believe Matthew, uh, again, Revelation 19 Verse 11 describes this exact event. We begin reading there in verse 11 of Revelation 19. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and that with it should smite the nations. This is the Word of God. His Word is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing and dividing asunder the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. His, out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. Now this is not just a judgment of nations, but people of every nation will be among those that he is judging. 
and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. You see him in all of his majesty and regal splendor, as Isaiah saw him, high and lifted up, his train filling the temple. Here he is, not as the meek and lowly Lamb of God, although he is that. Here's the roaring line of the tribe of Judah, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of the heaven, Come and gather yourselves together into the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the captains and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which he had deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with that flesh. At this point, the opportunity that for those who are alive and have not been saved, they will not be able to be saved. The evil servant who is described here in Matthew's gospel in the text that we're reading there in Matthew chapter 25 who has wasted his opportunity, who has sinned away his day of grace will be cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth as the, the scripture tells us. The foolish virgins who have found the door shut and they could not get into the wedding reception because of their foolish waste the lazy servant who had no excuse that will hold up before the judge's tribunal would be cast into outer darkness. Our Lord comes back to earth to set up his earthly kingdom and only his elect, his sheep, will enter it and enjoy the joys and the pleasures of the king. Our text tells us that our Lord will sit upon the throne of his glory. This is the beginning of his earthly kingdom. And we see this mentioned and referred to throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament. This is what the, the covenant that God made to David is all about. In Second Samuel chapter 7, in First Chronicles chapter 7, Psalm 89, Zechariah 14 verse 9. And in fact, in those what we refer to as Christmas verses, in the declaring of the coming of the Son of God to earth, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 9, verse 7, Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Did not the angel tell Mary in that announcement to her that she would bear the Son of God? He tells her, he shall be great. He shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. 
the ushering in of this kingdom is at this event. And the very first event that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords does is to separate the saved from the lost in a great open manifest and show, the, the sheep from the goats. These promises of David's throne are literal promises. And they will be fulfilled literally with a literal king, King Jesus. A literal throne and a literal kingdom on earth. Hundreds of years before our Lord was, had come to earth, the prophet Joel prophesied in Joel chapter 3 verse 11, Assemble yourselves and come all ye heathen. Gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full. The fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision... For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So shall you know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her anymore. This judgment of our Lord will be what these people did with the Savior here on earth. There's only one question that you need to have answered this evening is what have you done with Jesus Christ? It will be the great question that is asked to all the souls of men as they stand before him. What think you of my son? What have you done with the Savior, the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ? Did they believe on him? Or did they in pride and haughtiness and selfishness and sinfulness turn their backs on the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the whole reason for this judgment is to divide the sheep from the goats, the saved from the lost. Now, a sheep is not a goat, and a goat is not a sheep. That's very simple, isn't it? They're two different species, two different animals. We live in a day, I was thinking this morning, my granddaddy O'Neill or my granddaddy Lamb. My granddaddy O'Neill lived with us. We lived on the farm. He was one of those particular men who knew that things needed to be done in a certain way. My father was particular too, but not quite as particular as granddaddy O'Neill. My father worked a full-time job and farmed, and uh, he might not have got the cattle in just when granddaddy O'Neill thought they needed to be got in, but uh, he heard about it. And uh, they had a good father-in-law, son-in-law relationship, but you know how those things go. But I was just thinking today, my my daddy, 
uh, who, because of the circumstances in his home, did not finish high school or junior high school, self-taught, self-read, one of the most brilliant men I've ever known, read voraciously. He would uh, scratch his head if he were to, to, to watch the evening news tonight, as he, uh, he did every night. He read the Tuscaloosa News from the masthead to the last one ad every single day. And when he sees what we have taking place today, or my, either one of my grandfathers, they would not have to have had a degree in science or sociology or psychology to know what a man is or a woman is or what a specific race is or what a sheep is or a goat is. I'm not trying to be facetious here, but we live in a a day that is absolutely insane. And a sheep knows it's a sheep, doesn't it? And a goat knows it's a goat. And the two shall never be the one or the other. They're eternally different. Now, Christ isn't trying to find out anything here. Our Lord knows everything. But the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who is this judgment for? It is to show the lost that they're lost. He already knows because he knows all things. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 2 verse 19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. John 10 verse 3 says that he calls his sheep by name. They know his voice. He leads them and he leads them in and he leads them out. He here reveals though to to the goats who they really are. And he gives the formal indictment. In that day, our Lord's disciples would not have been disturbed or confused about the analogy that he's giving here because shepherds would often lead with their flocks of sheep. Sometimes they may have had a neighbor or a friend who had some goats that needed tending to. And for a time, for a while, you might see, and I'm told today in the Holy Land or in lands where this still is quite common, you'll see a shepherd sometimes managing different groups of animals together. The goats may go along with the sheep. But there will come a dividing time because, as we've already said, and I'm not trying to to be overly simplistic, sheep are, after all, sheep. And goats are goats, and they have major distinctions. Sheep are humble and timid and uh, gentle. Goats are anything but. Have you ever watched them? They're rambunctious. They're not easily controlled. They butt their way through, and they can cause problems. What an apt description of the saved and the lost. At nighttime, even in that land where shepherds might, would for a while, allow the sheep and the goats to to be together, there always comes a dividing time because the shepherd won't let the, the goats sleep with the sheep. And he uses his rod and his staff and he divides the sheep from the goats. We see that the Lord's own are precious 
and chosen. The word elect there is used in verse 34. Then shall the judge say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Their inheritance has already been settled in eternity past, and it is not, as some erroneous believe, erroneously believe, based on their works. Now, a major portion of this part of the Scripture deals with deeds. He talks about people visiting him when he was hungry and naked and in prison and so forth. And the sheep are scratching their heads and say, Lord, when did we never saw you naked or in prison or hungry? When did we do that? And he, he clearly is giving a graphic picture. When you did these things to anyone, to the least of these, you, is, is, is as if you're doing it unto me. The Bible tells us in various places that he that lendeth to the, the poor lendeth to the Lord. And how we treat the widows and orphans and those who are less fortunate, that's how we're treating the Lord. And that to give a cup of cold water in his name uh, is a major thing in, in the, the account books of heaven when done as unto the honor and the glory of the Lord. These works that he commends them for are not to get them into heaven. Let no one make that mistake here. There's nothing that anyone can do to save themselves. Romans 9 verse 11 tells us that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. These sheep have been called, haven't they? My sheep have been called. I call them. They hear me. We call that the effectual call. Praise the Lord for the call of the gospel. How many of you have heard the gospel call? He called out your name by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He brought you to his side. That is the gospel call. He calls his sheep. And praise the Lord, he tells us he loses. How many of them does our Lord lose when he gives an accounting to the father of his sheep? Could you help me here? Not a single one of them. He will present us faultless. He's able to keep that which we've committed unto him against that day, this day. And he will present us faultless before the Father's throne in glory. These sheep are his by his glorious grace alone. Grace, grace, God's grace Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. Not of works, lest any man should boast. You hear no boasting sheep at this judgment, do you? You hear no taunting goats. Our works prove whether or not we're saved. He gives examples of these works that are obvious in those who are truly regenerate. When God saves us, He does a mighty work. He doesn't just allow us to be His child. He doesn't just clear our name in justification and give us a standing in the courtrooms of heaven that will abide the test of time. He does an amazing thing in hard hearts, in selfish hearts. That's why it's so incongruous to see a selfish Christian or an un. A, a, Christian who doesn't look after the needs of others because 
when the Holy Spirit does his regenerating heart in a, a, the life of a sinner, behold, all things, old things are passed away and all things become new. And those that were, things that were once despised are loved and those that were once despised are loved. And the things of God become dear and precious. And the, all of a sudden there's a concern about people and things that, that were not as much a concern before. Now, this is not describing just a social gospel, but it does tell us that a sign, there are many, but a sign of regeneration and salvation is a compassionate heart and a desire to alleviate, if possible, the needs of, of others. And these, simply, these works simply reveal a regenerate heart. They are the natural result of, of someone who has been saved. Notice the eternal fate of the goats. Look there in verse 40. The king shall answer and say unto them, if he's answering, they've asked questions. Now we know when you compare Scripture with Scripture that one of the things the lost will do is say, you know, did we not do this and point to, to works. So he's answering them and saying to them, I say unto you, inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto, these, done it unto me. Verse 41, Then shall he say also to them on the left hand, the right hand in the Scripture is always the place of honor and blessing. The left hand in the Scripture, in this setting, he says, those on the left, the goats, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice this is what our Lord is saying. The fire of hell. I, I've read theologians who try to explain it away. They're taking away from the very words of Christ. Whatever that means, and I'm sure it has a far deeper meaning than we can imagine, just as the, the, the gold of heaven is far more glorious than we can imagine, and we cannot fully understand the mysteries of the glory of that place, neither can we fully understand the torments and the, the horrors of the place of hell. But you write it down and keep it where you keep your important messages. That hell is a place of eternal torment. Fire. Everlasting fire. What does everlasting mean? Again, my daddy who didn't have a high school education can tell you what everlasting is. And these little children here can tell you what everlasting is. It never ends. A fire that never ends. Prepared. Who was this fire prepared for? The devil and his angels, though that those that fell with him. Verse 44, Then shall they answer him, saying, He also... Notice, he, he, he speaks not only to the unsaved here, not because they're, they're unsaved, not because they didn't have good deeds. Please don't miss the point of this, this portion of Scripture. Their lack of good deeds are not why they're lost, and this, that's not why they're departing into everlasting hell. They go to hell because they are inherently evil and sinful and did not love the Savior, and did not want to have any part of Him. They would not come to Christ. Those who are lost are outside of Christ. Their hearts have not bowed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They hate the King. They, their voices are blended with those at the, 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 the crucifixion. We have no King but Caesar. This is not our King. We will not have this man 
to rule over us is the cry of a lost soul. I'll rule myself, is what the lost person says. If not audibly in their heart, I will make my own decisions, thank you very much. No preacher's going to tell me what to do. No Bible's going to tell me what to do. I know what to do. And so I'll be my own judge, my own Bible, my own conscience. I'll do what I want to do. And they do. But this is as far as it goes. There's an abrupt halt here. Is the law stand before the righteous judge? It's as if he says, you'll go no farther. This is it. They hate the king. We see their surprise here. Hell is defined as primarily a place of everlasting punishment, and there's no way out of it, and the punishment never lets up. The Greek word for everlasting and eternal is the same, even though in the English it is translated as eternal and everlasting. It is the same word in the Greek, and it means something without end. It is unrelenting. The unsaved will be rewarded by punishment forever. Just as the saved will be rewarded forever in the unending joys and the blessings of the kingdom of Christ, which is inaugurated after this judgment, the reign of Christ, then the great white throne judgment in the beginning of the eternal day. The lost don't just stop being alive as some erroneously teach. It wouldn't be so bad to die and go to, into the grave if nothing else happened after that, and I, I'm not being sacrilegious here. Some make death or the loss is merely just a, a state of not being anymore. And they point that the lost, while the, the saved are in heaven enjoying the blessedness of, of, of heaven eternally, the saved just stop being. You don't get that in this book that we're holding in our laps tonight. And we see it here. The lost don't just stop being alive. They, they don't die like animals and it, it all ends there. We saw with the rich man last week in Luke chapter 16. In flame he lifted up his eyes in torments. Revelation 14.11 says, And the smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever. Think about that. The smoke of their torment ascending forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. One of the blessednesses of the saved is the rest that Christ gives us. I mentioned that verse this morning, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Salvation is a rest. It is a rest of the soul, a ceasing from the struggle of the weight of sin that, that crushes us and brings us down. A resting from depending upon a, a fabricated righteousness to impress a thrice holy God. So pitifully do millions and millions of religious people labor under the burden of appeasing their God or some in the name of Christianity trying to earn God's favor in His salvation. Oh, happy day that fixed my choice 
on thee, my Savior and my God. Well, may this glowing heart rejoice and spread its raptures all abroad. All abroad. Happy day, oh happy day, when Jesus washed my sins away. He taught me how to watch and pray and live rejoicing every day. Happy day, happy day, when Jesus washed my sins away. Tis done, tis done, the great transaction's done. I am my Lord's, and He is mine. He drew me, and I followed on, charmed to confess the voice divine. There is a rest to the saved, the soul of man comes to the Savior and rests. We've fought each other on who gets to hold these twins next. The reason they don't sleep at night is because we pass them around and kiss their heads and and then give them to their mother and daddy at night to have to deal with. One of the most beautiful pictures, those babies on their mother's breast, so secure they're there. Just resting, not worrying where the next meal's coming from, not worrying about a single thing. There's a rest when a child is in its parents' arms. Salvation is the soul at rest, a ceasing from laboring and striving and trying, a removal of guilt and blame which the conscience forever shouts and a soul that's not right with God. Warfare is ended. The strife is all past. We're safe. We're safe with Christ at last. Oh, what a picture is painted for us here by the master artist himself. Here we see Jesus Christ, the well-beloved of the Father, full of glory, honor, power, majesty, and might. Perfection, his robes perfumed from the courts of heaven. Coming down to earth, sitting on his throne, on David's throne, in the holy city of Jerusalem. He begins his work of separation. The sheep from the goats. The saved from the lost. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we marvel at your word. We pray that as we approach your table as your children, that you would help us to rejoice in the glories of the cross. We truly glory in the cross of Christ. There, We find the rest for our soul. Tiring over the wrecks of time, the eternal glory of Jesus Christ, we glory in your cross. And as we remember your work for us at this table, Lord, we pray that you would, as we've already heard sung tonight, keep us near the cross, there a precious fountain, offering freely to all those who will come. And Lord, even as we come to approach your table, those outside of Christ may come to him. May they bend their hearts and their stubborn wills to the Savior and trust Him and Him alone to save them. Lord, we come as Your people. 
as this church, as brothers and sisters in Christ in this local assembly, to observe this family time together. And we pray that you would bless us and help us in Jesus' name.